there. It's a little bit of a little radio frequency RF charge that is picked up by your radio. And you notice you can't tune it out. That means it's broadband, which means that this uh, transmission is a very wide-banded transmission, and it covers a big area as far as the band is concerned on your dial, your frequency band. Now, if you were to take a, uh, a thousand little spark plugs, and deliberately, you see, take thousands of little spark plugs, very closely spaced, and uh, you were to spark those spark plugs in close unison, one after the other, you would produce a sound that was something like this. It would go on the air. Now, if that thing were just to go steadily that way, and it would contain no intelligence, do you agree? It would be just a single solitary note. Now, what if you were to turn the power off and on at regular intervals so that it would go like this? In other words, you would have sent the letter K. Is the letter K. So by that point, you are now interrupting the frequency, the, the uh, let's say the generation of RF current. You would have inter interrupted it. That's called ICW, or intermittent continuous wave. Uh, so that, at that point, you see you're, you're, you're actually transmitting information, okay? That's what the early shipboard transmissions consisted of. For example, the, uh, the Titanic was equipped with that kind of equipment. Uh, and one of the earliest uh, ships to be equipped with this. Uh, many ships were sailing uh, about the time of 1906 onward, roughly, 1903 roughly onward, uh, that carried this type of equipment. And generally, many of them didn't carry transmitting equipment, but only receiving equipment. Now, what kind of receiving equipment did they have? That's fascinating. They had a thing called a, uh, a coherer. A, uh, it was C-O-H-E-H-E-R, coherer, like to cohere to something. Adhere is not the same as cohere. Okay, so uh, they had uh, tiny carbon granules that were contained in, in, a, in a tube that when it picked up this frequency, when your great big tuning circuits would pick it up, they would cause these granules to, to actually cohere to one another at which point this would cause a signal. I'm very definitely simplifying it for you, but it would cause the sound to appear in these earphones that would almost exactly correspond with the sound that was being transmitted. So it would go, ah, 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 in the earphones. Now, this was a very ineffectual, it was a very insensitive uh, system, but effective for short ranges. So a ship, only a few... Uh, miles off the coast, for example, could hear a spark gap transmitter that was broadcasting and hear it very clearly. You could send out an SOS or, or uh, send out messages or repeat weather information. Generally, all the stations in those days were operated by the Navy or the War Department. Uh, they were not really privately operated for, for experimental reasons. There were experimental stations, but the ones that the ships listened to were the uh, Marine... Uh, naval uh, weather reports, very, very primitive at first. Well, then later on, they they uh, began to develop a system of of uh, crystal receiving. Now, the crystal was actually a diode detector. <laughs> it was it was in a sense the forerunner to what could be called today's solid state. 
the crystal was really actually solid state. It was a Galena crystal. Galena. Uh, G-A-L-E-N-A. And by the way, I'll give you a brass figure with bronze oak leaf palm. What president was born in the town that was named after that ore? <laughs> and why was that town named after that ore? Well, because they mined it in that area. What president? And he died in that town. Now, see, this is our bicentennial, and we're asking you things about your own country. What was the president? Uh, but we'll, we'll pass on. What state was it then? Galena. You know it's Galena. So what state is the town of Galena in? You don't know. Well, the town is still there. <laughs> I, I, I can't understand why nobody seems to know anything anymore. Has there been a strange poisonous gas that one of our, the foreign uh, uh, competitors of the United States has put, a for, uh, has put a gas in the air that erased, <laughs> erased the minds of everybody? <laughs> now, all right. Now, I'm, I'm not going to continue on with this. This is just a, this is just a basic... Uh, I had to ma ma make mention of the fact that... Uh, that uh, this uh, this man who invented this system, Dr. Alexanderson, died recently. And nobody, I think, may I mention him? I'm sure that Johnny Carson didn't mention him, although without him there would have been no Carson. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's always the way it is. But uh, nevertheless, no, he probably would mention, though, if William Morris died, uh, you know, a major agent or something, that would be important. But, but the, the guy that created the whole thing, forget it. Uh, however, he, he then then took with these crystals. You see, the crystal receiver, uh, as used on shipboard, became very complex. Most people think of a crystal must have been a simple receiver, you know, because they think of a crystal set as a simple little thing you buy down here on 6th Avenue for three ninety eight. But the crystal receiver, that uh, and they're great collector's items now. There are many of them that still exist, and they're in museums. But the crystal receiver... It was used by, say, a ship, say, for example, of the type of, uh, oh, uh, for argument's sake, the Titanic. Uh, this was a very complicated thing and, and was for that day, and it was in what they call steps, stages. So there would be, like, maybe 34 crystals used in a series circuits, in a circuit with, uh, with tuned circuits in between, until finally this was a, you know, a great big piece of equipment. And uh, they used enormous... Uh, what they call birdcage antennas, uh, which were a lot of wire and uh, very carefully tuned, very carefully cut. Now, on the other hand, if you take if you take uh, if you take uh, this signal, now he broadcast this signal. It went, and it, it was it was uh, if if you did it uh, with enough, let's say, your spacing between your actual explosions of your little spark plug, this little theoretical spark plug we give you were spaced even closer together, you would get a, a note that does not sound like what I made to you there at that point, a, a note that went... It was a, a note that more or less sounded like this. In other words, it became a hum rather than a rasping note. That's what they were trying to achieve, you see. And so they had great wheels. This was called the rotary spark gap. A great wheel was like a big round... Uh, uh, almost like a, if you can imagine a Ferris wheel, an electrical Ferris wheel that had a great round commutating uh, sliding uh, connector that were re revolved at rapid speed uh, through a whole series of spark gaps. So to watch a spark gap transmitter operator, I've seen a few of them 
uh, in museums, like this one that works in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. It's fantastic to watch because it looks like uh, some wild piece of fireworks. Because it's a spark gap, you see it. It roars around. And, it, uh, and the faster you make that thing go, the higher pitched the note is, of course. And if you could get a very steady source of uh, power on that rotating uh, wheel, it becomes a very solid note. In other words, it does not vary. It doesn't go ee, it goes ee, and sounds great. So at that point, they would put a great key in it. You know that you can still buy those keys on the collector's market, a tremendous key. And these guys would key this thing. And as they keyed it, they'd get enormous flashes even as they keyed of, uh, of great uh, spark discharges. And so the guy is keying this thing away, and at the same time it's being heard on this coherer receiver somewhere. Earphones, of course. So Dr. Alexanderson decided it would be very interesting if you were, instead of keying this thing, if some way you could find a way to superimpose the human voice on this sound. Well, how he did it was interesting. He did it by uh, modulating, in a sense, but by varying, what would be better to say it to people who know what the word modulation means in connection with electronics. But he, he varied the power, in other words, the actual battery power on the spark gap in accordance with the human speech. The way he did it was by taking a carbon microphone and uh, running the power through this carbon microphone. So as you talk, the resistance of the microphone varied and so on down the line until finally what you got was the sound like this, roughly. It, would be, it didn't sound like the radio that you're listening to now. Remember that he's modulating this raw note so it would sound something like this. Well, one, two, three, four, hello, test, one, two, three, four, roughly like that. But that in itself was, was devastatingly uh, revolutionary. Because up to this point, the human voice had never been heard further than the human voice could talk perhaps on the telephone. The telephone still it, it did exist then. But to, to, to sit out at sea somewhere and have no wires connecting and suddenly hear this voice talking was incredible. <laughs> Now, now, uh, <laughs> do you know that, that then he then, he was fascinated by this, you know, he actually made it work, and the reason that uh, he, he went on to patent all kinds of things, but then he went on and, and was one of the very first guys to ever send a picture via, uh, might, you might say, television. They didn't call it that in those days. They called it radio vision, by the way, in the early days. Radio vision was uh, was the name that it was called. It was meant that you were sending a picture by the by radio, and uh, it was a little tiny picture that he sent. And uh, they used the spark system almost the um, well. It wasn't really the spark system, but a big rotating wheel uh, with a photoelectric cell. And we can go into all that, and <laughs> that gets complicated. But television is not as early as you think. Most people would be astounded to know that television experiments were going on and successful ones. I mean, they were actually sending a picture uh, about the time of World War One. So television is not, you know, it's not this whole big deal. What, what, what really uh, is new about television, of course, is the fact that TV, uh, by the technology of World War II, was enabled... It enabled manufacturers to bring it out on a commercial basis. Prior to that, it had been a laboratory tool and highly expensive, tremendous expense, and, uh, you know, very involved. 
But nevertheless, uh, you know, the, one of the first guys that was involved in radio was... See, there used to be a guy called an inventor. Uh, in other words, there was a, a, an actual, an actual uh, profession called inventor. Today now, it's engineer, and it's development engineer. So every guy that works on a plant somewhere who's working away at uh, some very esoteric refinement of, uh, let's say, uh, transistorized uh, can openers... He adds a new little change to it. Uh, that's about the extent of inventing today. But see, an inventor in the, in the early days, everybody, it didn't take much really. Well, it took a lot, I suppose, by the standards of the day to understand all the theories of the day. So an inventor could, in, could, could, could invent motion pictures. He could invent telephone. He could invent, now we're talking about Edison. He could invent the electric light. In other words, he didn't see himself as a specialist. He was an inventor. Well, now, one of the most, one of the most famous of all the inventors, who invented, actually, let's put it this way, refined, because invention is a strong word. Who invented the thing we call today FM? And, uh, by the way, his, his uh, FM, most people just say FM. Well, it's frequency modulation, uh, as opposed to what you're listening to now, which is AM or amplitude modulation, which means that you hear me because my voice is varying the amplitude of the single signal you hear, which means the actual thickness of the signal, the, the, the depth of it. Whereas FM varies the frequency of the signal you hear, not the amplitude. That is, if it's well-tuned. You may get a bit of both, <laughs> in which case you're probably going to take it. However, uh, uh, the, 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 the invention of the FM was, was made by whom? That is correct, Major Armstrong. And don't put a quota on it. He was a major. <laughs> that was not just a nickname, you know, like you call old Sarge. He was a major. Major in what? That confuses you. We'll better drop that. All right, it was Major Armstrong. What else did he play a key role in developing? Aha, that's a little more esoteric. Well, in fact, you're listening to something, a device now, that Major Armstrong was a key developer of the superheterodyne receiver. Now, what was superheterodyne? Well, that's way beyond the scope of tonight's chorus gang. But uh, if you want to know about the beginning of that thing that you're listening out there, too, uh, it began in 1906, effectively. That is the voice uh, transmissions that began to... Now, what revolutionized it to the point where it, it actually sounded like a voice uh, instead of the... It sounded like somebody uh, yelling through a, a garden hose uh, with a lot of uh, buzzing around him. See, the early sound was, was identifiable as a human voice, obviously. But it was not what you think of as now, fidelity, a human voice that you know now. Uh, remember this, though. Information and communication could very easily be conveyed over that system. So it didn't make any difference whether the guy sounded great or not. But if he says, uh, oh, this is one, two, three, four, he was, you, could, you could tell what he was saying. And uh, that's what it was uh, about. Now, what changed that to the point where it sounded really pretty much like a human voice? What was that change? Well, obviously... It had to be a change in the in the spark gap system. It had to be a change so that it didn't sound like a hum any longer, but sounded uh, much smoother than that. Well, that was the invention of the radio tube, as we know of today. Uh, and who did that? Who put the grid inside this diode detector 
which made it possible for this thing to work really the way it is, pretty much the way it works today, was the big revolutionary discovery. What was his name? When you've probably seen his name many times on tubes and never related to why his name is there. Well, the name is DeForest. Have you ever heard the name? Well, he's, <laughs> you better know about it. Very important man. DeForest put the grid in the tube, and he discovered that uh, that, that would make a big difference. Now, I don't know why I'm telling you all this, except that, no, it, it, it always amazes me, though, that the, at the lack of, of information that most of us have about the things which we take for granted. And uh, it can be fascinating to people to know a little bit about it, how it works. Now, uh, in 1906, of course, you can, it's, it's hard for us today to comprehend what kind of a sensation it must have been to somebody in 1906 to hear a voice come out of this little mechanical piece of metal, this earphone, to actually hear a human voice come from what appears to be totally uh, empty air. They didn't, in those days, they, they didn't call it that. They called it the ether. That was called the ether. It was believed at one time that there was a, a uh, substance in the air called ether, the ether. What, uh, look it up in your dictionary. Find it. And so they said that this was coming out of the ether. Uh, and and uh, in fact, in the early days of radio, radios were named after that. Yeah, there were there were various types of names the, of, of uh, radio sets. Today, people just call a radio set with totally un uh, names do not apply to the actual receiver. In other words, they'll call it the Galaxy model, or they'll call it the Capricorn or something like that. But in those days, they named it after the technique. For example, the Neutrodyne. And uh, there were receivers called the diodyne, and the uh, you know all kinds of those were names that were that were based on the kind of radio it was, <laughs> you know the actual circuit. Now, uh, as you can tell, by the way, I'm a collector of old radios. I collect them, and if there's anybody out there who's got an old radio, uh, the laner out up in the attic that uh, you've been wondering what to do with, I will give it a great home. And no, I'm, in fact, I'm thinking, I'm very seriously thinking of creating some kind of a museum uh, for this kind of stuff. Uh, because, it, uh, you know, it's, it's got a certain basic historical importance. And if you've got an old radio, let me know, you know, seriously. Uh, however, uh, getting, back to, uh, getting back to Alexanderson, see, the guys that were doing this stuff in those days were what could be called inventors. They were not electronic specialists. That word did not come into being for many years. They were inventors, and they invented many things. For example, there was one guy that, uh, that is, a, is an unsung genius, and uh, a lot of his, his, some of his early experimental towers and things still exist in various parts of the country. Did you ever hear the name Tesla? <laughs> the Tesla coil. Uh, by the way, the Tesla coil is still today used in many uh, pseudo-spiritualist seances. It's a fake rooney it's a, it's a coil that uh, creates a certain corona about it. Uh, and uh, he, he gave that to the world, and among other things. He also was one of the earliest workers in the, the field of, of long-distance radio phone and radio communications, Tesla. Now, uh, other, other guys that fooled around with it... Uh, one of them 
was one of the very earliest inventors of various types of radio equipment that became part. In fact, he was one of the early developers of what we call today the amplifier. See, the idea of amplifying these radio signals was then a whole thing. So you could hear them louder, and you could hear them in a loudspeaker. Well, this guy's work was in that department. Yeah, incidentally, very early after the beginning of radio, the first commercial went on. <laughs> well, it did. And you know how it was done? No. The commercial wasn't done as a commercial. That's the thing that you must understand. It wasn't the, the, why, it, why it went on was this was back... Uh, the earliest known commercial was done of all places, in Kentucky. It was in that area. It was in Lexington, or Louisville, I believe. And it was a, an experimenter working with a radio station. And it was not a radio station like we know of today. And uh, they used to come on experimentally. Uh, it was right after World War One, And they would play experimentally on the air. They would play records just to, to, to give something to for people to who were experimenters also. Radio listeners were experimenters. They built their own radios in those days. They didn't have radio sets. And so this guy that was uh, the experimenter was playing these records, and he would play them on the air. Well, he didn't own the records, you see. He, what he would do, he would go down and borrow them from a guy who had a record shop. Now, it wasn't the idea of selling them. He would put these records on, and he would come on once in a while just to say, the reason these records are here is because... Luke has lent them to us. And at that point, all of a sudden, it, it never occurred to them that this would make people do anything. Large amounts of people arrived down at Luke's place to find out if they could buy that great record they heard. That was the beginning of the whole thing, believe it or not. It was all accidental. Do you know who one of the, one of the people was that, 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 that campaigned before Congress? This is ironical. Before Congress for the uh, legal... Uh, prevention of commercials. He, he, in fact, he gave a famous speech in which he said, if you put commercials on radio, it's going to destroy the whole idea of radio. You'll never guess who it was. Before Congress, this was, huh? Sarnoff, correct. <laughs> the guy that created uh, NBC. <laughs> but nevertheless, the facts are that this is what happened. Now, there was a guy that was working very early in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, amplifiers. Uh, his name was also associated with another invention. The only reason I'm telling you this is that inventors in those days invented a lot of things. He messed around with amplifiers and was one of the earliest experimenters in the field. He built various loudspeakers when they were unknown. His, his uh, name, though, is associated with, believe it or not, something that you see quite often on television, on crime shows. Do you hear what I said? Television crime shows. What, what, what often shows up on a crime show when a hitman is zapping somebody else. What is it that you see? Not a gun, but it's something associated with a gun. A silencer. All right, have you ever seen him go zap? This guy invented the silencer. It was known as the Maxim Silencer. M-A-X-I-M. Uh, nothing to do with the uh, coffee of the same name. And uh, <laughs> Maxim, Hyrule Maxim, Maxim was also a very early radio experimenter. And the amateur radio station of the American Radio Relay League, which is the worldwide league of amateur radio operators, bears his original call sign as a memorial to him. The call is W1AW, which was his original call sign, 1AW. So, uh... There's a lot to this business, isn't there, gang? Right?
Has this bored the daylights out of you? Of course. Well, uh, one must take the bitter with the better, friends. And don't worry, in just a few moments, you can tune around the dial, and Johnny Carson will be there, and he'll laugh at Phyllis Diller, and things will be back to normal then. All right? <laughs> oh, man. So that ends uh, tonight's uh, salute to, uh, to Allied Radio, uh, to Radio Shack, to Hugo Gernsback. There's a name for immediately write to me. Now, don't immediately write to me in this creaky handwriting. You must be a contemporary of mine. I remember Hugo well. Uh, I'm telling you all of this historically, buddy. (laughs) You don't have to have campaigned with Hannibal to know about Hannibal, right? And by the way, who was that president? Come on. Who lived in Galena? U.S. Grant. 